how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Author and screenwriter Dennis Lehan grew up in the storytelling bar culture. It was actually in his blood, and he wrote his first novel at the age of 15. He's known for Mr. River, Shutter Island, The Drop. All novels turned into movies. Since then, he's also moved into television to work on shows like The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, Mr. Mercedes, The Outsider, and most recently, Apple's Blackbird. In this interview, the author and screenwriter talks about being exposed to violence, what it means to be seized by an idea, why he outlines Shutter Island but none of his other novels, his friendships with Stephen King and David Simon, and why good television can be trickier to write than novels. Oh, I just always did it. I, I think I, I, you know, when I look back, I, I think the culture I grew up in certainly encouraged it. It was very much a, um, a storytelling culture, a bar culture. Um, you know, my, my father was from a massive, I, I mean, massive family. He was the uh, 16th of 18 kids. And they all immigrated, most of them immigrated to the United States and stayed and half of them immigrated to Boston. And um, so they would just gather every weekend, every single weekend at one house or the other, um, all around the city. And then they would just tell stories. They would just tell stories of the old country. That was what they did. And so I, I think I just grew up in, in the thrall of that. And um, I started writing very early, I mean, third grade. Um, and uh, wrote my first novel when I was 15. Um, it was just something I always did. And then, um, it, because it wasn't a viable career option where I came from, uh, and my father very much wanted me to, you know, get a job, get a, have, be able to get a job. Um, I took two, I dropped out of two colleges with safety majors and then finally went to my parents and just went, look, I, all I want to do is just try my hand at this, be a writer. And they were like, well, you know, you're just terrible at everything else. So sure. <laughs> uh, and that is that one of the great gifts, I, I feel like I would love it to be visited on either of my children is um, to have a passion and, and be bad at everything else. Mm. It, it, you got to have both. You can't be bad at everything. And you can't just have the passion, but because if you have a passion and you have other avenues you could go along, like you're also very, you know, mathematically smarter, you could become a doctor, or you could become a whatever. Yeah, but you're going to do those things. But I had nothing else. I just, this was it. It's what I knew how to do. So when you started to find some success, did you see a thread or a lane? Like, were you? moving towards stories maybe around more violence were they around true stories what, what was kind of the things that first made you successful uh, well as a writer in, in, i could tell very early in college that the people who that the stories everybody responded to most were stories that came out of the world i grew up in. you know like you're trying to try everything when you're first writing you know what i mean mm -hmm. so i and i have i have an ear that allows me to very quickly slip into a type of um uh i can i can easily uh, pose as, as something else in a story. I can very easily go Southern, you mm. know, no problem, but it didn't have this somehow the richness to, to just didn't have that real connection that, um, uh, 
that my story set in the world I grew up in, which was Dorchester, uh, St. Margaret's Parish specifically, um, had. So I knew people responded to that. As to violence, I was always concerned with violence because at a very young age, I was probably exposed to way too much of it. And um, not, not in, in my home, but on the streets. And, um, and specifically, it's funny because my, my latest novel, which will be out next year, is, is addressing this direct head on for the first time in my life. But when I was nine years old, they desegregated the Boston public schools and, and we were right on the front lines and everything exploded and um, just absolutely exploded. And to see these nightmarish images of violence playing out in front, of, literally in front of you as you walk down the street. I mean, people would be burning people in effigy and holding up, you know, unbelievably racist signs. And there was, you know, black on uh, white on black violence and, and some black on white violence. And it, it just was, it was nuts. And I was nine. So you're pretty impressionable at that age. And I just became fascinated with, uh, because I was not a particularly violent person myself. So I became fascinated with why there was violence in the world. It's one of the old age, age old questions, you know. Were you, were you always working? Um, like what is kind of your process like in terms of novels? Do you write multiple at one time? Like when do you know an idea is good enough to chase it and it's a full story there? It gets to be instinctual after a while, but it takes a long time. And it, and even so you can, I still go up the wrong road sometimes. You know, I, I have, you know, I've in the last, but I've only published two novels. I'll, my, my novel will be coming out in 2023. That'll mean I'll, I'll have published exactly, I think three novels in the last 10 years. Hmm. Um, so uh, in that time, I've chased some bad ideas, but I haven't chased them long. You know, I might chase them for like, I wouldn't even say I chase them to the point where I write. Hmm. I chase them where I sit and I think, and I take notes and I, you know, I just scribble in a notebook for days and days and days. And then one day I just look down at it and I just go, well, this sucks. That's it. You know, moving on. Um, but uh, every now and a great, great, great while, every now and then you get seized by, by an idea. And that happened to me with this past book I just wrote. So, um, so that came out pretty much fully formed from the moment the idea hit my head to what came out on the page didn't change drastically. Does, I get, does that inspiration change? Like it's, it seems like if you're looking at something like Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, Shutter Island, it seems like as a viewer, and I'm talking more about the movies perhaps, that you would have to know the ending to really even get going. Is that is that always the case or is it more coincidental? Or how do you think about some of those things? I, I, I always have to know one big thing at the end. Shutter Island is the exception. Shutter Island is the exception to everything I've ever written and to everything I'll ever talk about in terms of philosophy. It's the only book I've ever outlined. Um, it's the only book where I had to know every single major move because you couldn't write it otherwise because I was playing such a trick. You know, it was such a, that was such a tightrope walk hmm. that I couldn't make a mistake that you could look back at the book later and go, oh, he didn't know what he was doing. Like it had to be, I had to lay in every single fair clue from the first page. And it literally is the first page is the first kind of clue I leave, you know? Um, so otherwise though, I just need to know one thing that happens at the end, one thing. Um, in Mystic River, I knew I was gonna pull the rug out from everybody in terms of the myth of the American hero. That was it. I always knew the guy who was the hero was also the villain. And then, you know, 
So, um, and then Gone Baby Gone, I knew who the kid was with. Mm -hmm. I was search for a missing kid. I knew who the kid was with and I knew why they took her. And that's it. I didn't know any other piece of how I was going to get there, which is why my novels often take me a really long time to write because I make a lot of mistakes and I don't outline. Whereas TV, I outline everything. How do you think about the subtlety of novels versus TV? Like it, it, it seems like you may have to even be more careful with television because you know so many viewers are watching and rewatching in terms of like, if you're, if you're holding a, a big reveal at the end, or do you kind of see it as the same in terms of the subtlety of the clues and that type of thing? It's trickier on TV because also viewers are just really savvy. I mean, mm -hmm. as TV has continually gotten better, the people who watch good TV are smarter. Mm -hmm. They've seen more. So they can sit there and they can go, oh, I know it's going to, you know, I was watching a show recently and I just knew because of the trope of not showing one character on the other side of a phone line, <laughs> I knew that that was going to be a huge reveal. Right. I knew the character was already in our myths and already in our mix because why else not? Why else wouldn't you show it? Now, would I have that feeling in watching TV in 1998? Maybe not. Maybe not. I might cut, I might cut this, but was that the old man? Cause I had the same yeah. idea. Yeah. I, I, exactly. I was, yeah. Okay. The moment, the very first moment we didn't do a cut. Yeah. In their first conversation, there was no cut to who this person was. <laughs> I was like, okay, so that's going to be a big reveal. Yeah. You know? So, um, and that's not knocking the show. That's saying that's such a tricky man. It's, it, it's tough keeping up with how savvy viewers are. It really is. It's a great challenge though. It was surprising it was immediately revealed, though. Do you think that's different now, too? Like, instead of, it depends how the story goes, but, like, holding on to that even longer. They they told you, like, the next episode or episode three. It was episode three. Yeah. yeah. So so I wonder why they, you know, I don't know, went ahead and gave it away to a degree, you know? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how they explain it. That's, yeah. that's you know. Uh, Maybe that's more the, yeah, the, the question. I mean, how are they going to, yeah, I don't know how they're going to explain that. Yeah. Anyway, but I'm looking for, I'll watch it. So we'll see. Um, well, tell me about your involvement with the wire or was that your first kind of TV mm -hmm. gig? Um, was it just because of the people saw how, how great your novels were? Did you have to kind of audition? Like how did that all work? How did you transition into TV? It was, it was friends. It was friends working on a show that nobody watched. Um, no, nobody watched the wire back then. It, Wire became the Wire in the fifth season, very end of the fifth season. Mm -hmm. um, so, my uh, David Simon, who I knew, um, uh, a, you know, fairly well—not great, but fairly well—knew um, his wife quite well. And David had the idea that if TV was, um, if TV writers were so good, why was TV so bad? Mm -hmm. So he didn't want to hire. And this is again two thousand and two. You know, this is way back. So he decided he wanted to hire novelists to write for the show. So he got two, he got um, George Pelicanos and Richard Price. And then George um, really took to it, really took to it. And, and said, uh, David said, who else you know? And he said, you should get, the, you should get Lahane. He's a movie fanatic. He knows every movie that ever existed. And so they reached out to me and I was absolutely underwater trying to write a, my big 700 page epic about, you know, the labor unions mm -hmm. and um 
So I said, I can't do it this year. That was season two, their first approach. I said, but please don't lose my number. And so they came to me for season three and I had the time then. And it was a crash course, man. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue. Um, seriously, you know, you, you think, oh, it's the same DNA. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my first episode of The Wire, I think maybe 45% of what I wrote made it to the screen. My second episode, it was more like 70%. My third episode, it was almost 100%. So that's when I, I was like, it was literally growing up on the show, learning what the hell I was doing because I just didn't know how to do, you know, how to do what, what, what film and TV is, which is the juxtaposition of cuts. You know, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's how fast you get to something. It's how you just don't have the time. A novelist can sit there and have, we all talked about how one of the reasons, one of the inspirations for The Wire was Clockers by Richard Price. And, and Clockers is, you know, in my opinion, the great urban novel. And we, all talked about the scene in Clockers that goes on for pages of just two guys sitting in the bowels of the housing department talking. That's it. It's telling each other stories. And you could never do that in, in TV. You just can't. That's what a novel's for. Mm-hmm. You know, TV, you gotta, you know, and, and, and film, you gotta move it along fast, you know, and that, that makes it a, an interesting challenge. Uh, but then you can use cinema to your advantage. Mm-hmm. You can use the camera to your advantage in a way you can't above. Once you learn that, uh, real less is more kind of philosophy embeds. Were there any storing techniques, uh, storytelling techniques that after you start writing for television moved into your novel work? Um, I, I, my novels, um, I think it's no mistake that my novels began to uh, shorten in length. Hmm. No question. I think I was, I was, I was less, there's less fat on the bone. Um, and, but yeah, that also could have been because after I wrote a 700 page book, I said, I never want to write a book that long again. And, but yeah. How do you kind of think about other authors? Um, it, it seems like, I see you worked on Mr. Mercedes, like at a point, like after Stephen King wrote it, it seems like most everything you wrote after that was very long. Now there's plenty of exceptions, but mm-hmm. Did you have any, um, like, it, it sounds like you said TV kind of helped you make that decision, but was it difficult to take any ego out of or anything like that, that like, you know, making these stories longer and some of those things, or is it always about the value of the story, the value of the reader? How do you think about some of those things? I think it's always about the value of the story. I, I don't, I, um, I feel very uh, blessed. And I think at this point I can say very confident in the fact that I'm, I have a massive, massive ego of the work and I have a very, very tiny ego of the self as a writer. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, it's not, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's about me telling a story and telling a story really well. And, and do I have an ego about that? Yes, very much so. You know, I know what the hell I'm doing and, and I, I will protect my story if I get in a fight with somebody about it. But when it's about, is it about me? No. There's nothing to do with me. I don't want, um, you know, if I put something in a story that happens to be personal and somebody says to me, this doesn't work. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Out it goes. You know, if somebody says, if somebody says this doesn't work, I'm a really receptive person to that. And I'm receptive to my actors as well. Now, you know, that it's just kind of like, Oh, you don't like that line. We'll get rid of it. 
Mm. You know, Ray Liotta and I had a, an absolutely hysterical fight on, uh, it wasn't a fight even, yeah, it wasn't a fight, it's the wrong way to put it. But we had a, had a uh, discussion on the set about one word that I put in a, in a script. And, and, uh, and I was like, Ray, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know? And he was like, well, why would you write this? And I said, I don't know. Like it was, it was a year ago. What do you want from me? You know, it's, I wasn't like, I've seen a lot of people, directors, writers, they get their backs up and then they start word salad. They give you a word salad and they, and they just try to make up stories as opposed to just saying, I don't know, or well, I don't give a shit. Like, I, I, you know, whatever, I, whatever you want to do, if we can make this work together so that it's, it's contributing to the whole story, mm -hmm. I'll do whatever you want. I'll tweak, you know, and, what, and I'll what, tweak on the fly. Was it something that changed the character, changed the story? Why was he adamant about it? Maybe he just didn't like the word. <laughs> All it was, was it said in, it was a parenthetical mm. and it just said smiles ruefully. Ray was like, why would I be rueful? And I'm like, well, because you just, you know, it's kind of mild ruefulness. And he was like, Dennis, there's no such thing as mild ruefulness. Ruefulness is a very serious thing. <laughs> and he's like, when then he was, Ray would get caught up on why. And so he was like, why would you write this? And I literally, I got 200 people staring at me and I'm like, um, and I literally said, I don't have to know. Like, I was like, Ray, it was a year ago. I don't care. You know, like if you don't like it, you don't. How do you feel in this scene? And he was like mildly irritated. And I was like, play that, you know, like play right. that. Don't be rueful at all. Um, so, you know, I, I am just not, I, I am not precious at all about my work, um, but I'm very protective. There's two different things. It's two different things. Precious is, is getting in the way of everybody else. Protective is preserving your work. So we're talking about Blackbird now. That's the Ray Liotta film. So how did you first get involved with this adaptation? Uh, it was brought to me. Uh, I was, it was at HBO at that time. And it was brought to me by Len Amato, who ran um, nonfiction for HBO, and Carrie Antholis. And uh, Carrie and I had a personal, you know, we're friends. And he pushed me. I didn't want to do it. I was like, I'm so sick of darkness. I don't like prisons. I really don't want to do this. And he said, just read it, please. I just want to hear your take on it. So, um, you know, Blackbird's the story of a guy, uh, Jimmy Keen, who was, uh, he was facing, he was, he was doing 10 years mandatory in, uh, in prison when uh, the FBI came to him and they said, we would like you to agree to transfer to a maximum security prison, a real hellhole in Springfield, Missouri, and elicit a confession from a serial killer. If you do that, we'll commute your entire sentence gone if you fail you're stuck doing your time there which is in one of the worst prisons in america and jimmy took the deal because uh his his father who was really the closest relationship of his life was growing um uh was was ailing uh, and jimmy knew he wouldn't wouldn't see him if he did his 10 years so he did it to to get out of prison earlier and be with his father and um that's our story and then uh when i was listening to it on tape i was listening to it on, well not on tape but you know what i mean and uh i was driving and and i suddenly came up with this idea where i was just like wow this could be a cool story if you used it to look at sort of the male gaze the darkness of the male gaze the the uh the, 
the dark edge of misogyny? Where do we fall on the line? You know, as men, men, because um, I feel like women objectify just as much as men, but only men, men kind of weaponize it. And, um, and I wanted to know why and where that fits because we, I've all, we've all had moments as men where, you know, where we could find ourselves somewhere on that line. Now the serial killer is obviously a Z, you know, there's no question that at the line, I don't think too many men out there are A's. Um, but say something as innocent as you do a double take at a pretty woman who passes you on a street. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's there, you know, but that's pretty innocent. And then you get all the way down to, you know, incels and, and guys like Larry Hall who literally, you know, want to kill women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, because they feel that there's, I saw a woman yesterday uh, wearing a t-shirt and it said, um, all it said on the, on the t-shirt was women don't owe you shit. <laughs> I loved it. That was great. But there is this thing, there's this thing in our culture, which is that women owe us something just simply by our, because we're men. And I wanted to examine that. And, um, and I thought this was a really good story to do that. Now, when you come up with a theme like that or notice a theme like that, I think this is six episodes. Is that something you're trying to build upon the different levels, as you said, from, from A to Z? Are you trying to show that in, in several ways? Are you trying to space it out in a certain way? How do you think about some of those things in, in terms of putting the kind of crumbs together for the viewers? I want it to be my, um, that's, you know, that's my skeleton. That's my, that's my main line, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it has to be in, um, not everything, but it has to be in most of it. You have to be able to constantly realize you're coming back to this general idea of, you know, who am I? How do I get to connect with this guy? Mm-hmm. Because he's, Jimmy is told, you have to find common ground with this guy. So what common ground can he find? And how does he find it? And part of it, the trick is, part of it is Jimmy's manipulating. Jimmy knows what he's, Jimmy's playing a part. So there's points where he's just, you know, throwing it against the wall, seeing if it sticks. But there's other points where Larry's too savvy for him. So he has to be honest and it causes him to start delving into his own relationship with women, with the relationship he had with his mother um, and, and, and looking at himself maybe in a very uncomfortable way, which is, you know, again, this is the Jimmy in quote air quotes. I want to say Jimmy and air quote, my Jimmy, not necessarily Jimmy Keene. You know, that wasn't necessarily a big, huge part of Jimmy Keene's journey in reality but it became a big part of my Jimmy King because I'm trying to tell a story. Is there ever a point in your career with memoirs or more stories based on reality that it's difficult to, to make that transition, to make a character your own? Did you ever feel, you know, overly connected to truth or something like that? Yeah. I mean, when I, I wrote, when I, I've written a few historical novels and there was a couple of times where I remember obsessing over the, the date that a guy died in 19, the real guy died in 1918. And one day this voice in my head just said, nobody knows who this guy is. Nobody cares. Like, just, just do what you need to do, you know? So, um, because what, we, again, what we're after in, when we do nonfiction is we're after emotional, emotional truth trumps facts. Hmm. I don't want to get mired down in facts sometimes. I just want to, you know, the, the example I always use is Edward Lawshanks. And William Wallace did not die on the same day. 
They didn't even die within the same calendar year, as far as I understand it. Mm -hmm. But the end of Braveheart, they die on the same day because it's a good movie, makes a good movie, you know? So um, that's, you know, that's the kind of, that's my barometer. Um, And keeping true to the spirit. I would never have done anything in Blackbird that betrayed Mm -hmm. um, the essence of the story I was told. I would never have done, made any character something that they weren't, Mm -hmm. if you will, you know? something that would have been detrimental to who they are at their heart. So. Can you elaborate a little on, you said you were, when you were offered this, you said you were sick of darkness. A lot of the stories you're known for are very dark. Um, Do you feel like you're kind of, are you pigeonholed in a certain area? Um, Are you able to find some lightness in that? Yeah, that's what I do. I mean, I think that's what I do. Certainly. I believe in, you know, I've read an interview with Cormac McCarthy where he talks about, you know, the, the littlest pinprick of light that points up through the darkness is all the more powerful because of how powerful the darkness is. That light is still always there. And that's what I believe in. Everything I've ever written has, you know, a, a bounty of hope in it near the end. As dark as it is, it's saying that, that we don't have to be this darkness. We can overcome this darkness. Um, and I think that's, that was um, certainly the journey of Jimmy in in this this is you know he goes on a a really in my opinion mythic journey where he has to go off and and battle demons in a dark cave and he comes back a changed man he comes back a better man mm-hmm. but he also comes back a more damaged man you can't you know can't it's not, nothing's ever clean you mm-hmm. know so um but yeah i i think in dark in terms of darkness i just don't well i don't yeah, I, it's what I do well. It's what I do well. So <laughs> I'll probably continue doing it. But I just didn't initially want to. I was I had been in Stephen Kingland for. Um, you know, Steve's a good friend of mine. It's great books, but I, it's it's a dark world to be in when you're mm-hmm. doing Mr. Mercedes and and a watch and then The Outsider, which I did for HP. You know, two different networks. I was just mm-hmm. becoming this go-to guy for Stephen King, and I was like. Then they, then they say, hey, you know what we'd like you to do next? We'd like you to set a story in a prison. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, oh my God, about with a serial killer. And I have two daughters. And I, you know, so it's a lot of reasons I didn't want to do it. But, um, but in the end, I think it made the material better because I was so scrupulous because I have two daughters of honoring the memories of the victims because I know they're real and they have parents out there still. And this, you know, this, this story is going to, you know, stir some things up again. And I wanted to make sure that there was nothing exploited at all in the presentations of, of the two dead girls that, that we depict in the show. How do you think about outlining when you are outlining? Are you trying to avoid certain tropes? Are you thinking about hero's journey? Are there any misconceptions people have about outlining a story? Um, the the mis- biggest misconception is that there's one way to do it. There's not. What works for me might not work for somebody else. We, I was talking to somebody recently about, um, I, I'm one of those writers who needs to know, usually within the first week, where my story's going in a room. Like if I have a writer's room, I want to know, I want to have the end point on there. I might not, that might not be where it ends, but I need to know it, at least to drive towards it. Um, where I've, I've heard that Vince Gilligan works completely different. Mm-hmm. So if Vince Gilligan's people apparently like to just not know where something's going and keep building and building. 
hey man, uh, who am I to say that his method, <laughs> you know, which has produced some of the, you know, two of the greatest television shows in history, isn't, you know, the method, you know, to go by. So I feel like there's no one way to do it. Um, the big thing is, is that you should just always be focused on, yes, is this, a, is this trope beaten to death? Mm-hmm. You know, because if it is, get, find a new way. And, and then number two, are these characters rich enough? Am I doing my job to make these characters rich enough and memorable enough? Um, and that to me is the sign of a great show. You know, simple as that. You remember the characters far more than you remember what happened. Perfect. I think we're almost out of time. Um, I do like to kind of wrap with, you know, if you were to go back and, and early in your career, give yourself a piece of advice, anything that comes to mind. Relax, relax a little bit. You know, I was very tightly focused for a long time. I would, I would say ease up a little bit. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to kill you if you, if you don't write a perfect sentence today. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting here. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new course called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.